0: Bible, so misunderstood, it's a sin. From that article by a man named Kurt Eichenwald comes this quote No television preacher has ever read the Bible. Neither has any evangelical or politician. Neither has the Pope. Neither have I, and neither have you. At best, all we've read is a bad translation. A translation of translations of translations of hand-copied copies of copies of copies of copies, and on and on hundreds of times, close quote. So I ask you this morning, is that really the best we've had with the Bible? A translation of translation, a copy of copies of copies of copies, and so on and so on, hundreds of times. So when you open that book in your hand, or turn on that book in your hand, is it the Word of God? Now, as recently as 2014, and I could find more articles even more recent This is the standard type of objection you hear, is it not? Maybe some of you this morning, you're here and you hold that objection. Is it really the word? I mean, isn't it just like the game telephone? How can we really expect that a document, a historical document from the first century AD has passed down on and on throughout? the millennia to us without corruption and without error. Is that really what we can expect? Some of you have probably had this. And if any of you make any serious efforts to share the gospel with your unsaved family or friends, you will inevitably run into somebody who has had uh, a freshman or sophomore year of college who's taken a world religions class or a literature class and they're going to bring these accusations up from scholars like Bar Ehrman and other Harvard University uh, scholars and, and all of a sudden all, you're, you're looking like a fool. All of a sudden... I mean, doesn't everybody else know this except for those crazy Christians at Kahalui Baptist Church and their pastor? Is that really how we got the Bible? And how does all of this relate to John and this passage with the woman caught in adultery? So let this sermon be part of my effort, if you will, to take 2 Timothy 1, 13 through 14. Let this be part of my effort as Paul wrote to Timothy. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard, here it is, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So let this be my effort this morning as pastor to guard this deposit that has been entrusted to me that I received and has been received down since the time of Christ. Let this be my efforts to guard it. Now, I preached a sermon on Sola Scriptura from 2 Timothy 3 uh, a couple years ago. I don't remember exactly when it was, in which I spoke about the view of the scriptures that we hold as a church, see divine inerrancy and inspiration of the scriptures, and how the scriptures attest to themselves uh, internally, and the view of Jesus towards all of the scriptures that they are, when you hold that book in your hand, it is, and they would say, you have the Word of God. So I preached on that. This is going to be a subcategory of that. We're going to delve little bit deeper into what we call transmission of the text, or how you got the Bible. How do we know we have an accurate, there's a number of things we have to uh, to bridge, if you will, from the first century, from the time that John wrote his gospel. A number of things that must be bridged. And one of those things, two of those things we're actually going to ask this morning is, first, do you have an accurate translation in your hands? Is it even possible to translate language from one to another with accuracy? That's what you have to ask yourself. The second question you have to ask is, do we have the right manuscripts to translate? Have they been corrupted? Because it doesn't matter if you can translate accurately from one language to another if your manuscript is corrupted. You tracking with me? You tracking? So that's what we want to talk about. We call that the transmission of the text. The text has been transmitted. Yes, it has been copied by hand until the year 1500 when the printing press came into existence and they were able to actually print off documents for the first time in history. But prior to that, for 1500 years, the Bible was copied by hand. Which raises the question, wow, and you still believe? That it is the word of God, Pastor Randy? Yes, and I hope by the end of this, you are too. Now, since I'll be mentioning textual issues with the Bible that you hold in your hand, it's worth saying a brief word again by way of summary on the inerrancy of scriptures. Because I don't want you to leave here saying Pastor Randy doesn't believe in the inerrancy of scripture. So it's important to lay down what it is and what it is not. What it is, when we say the Bible is inerrant, divinely inspired by God, we mean that it is without error in its, and this is important, in its original autographs. You tracking with me? In its original autographs or documents. Inerrancy does not apply to copies. We don't hold that all copies of scripture are inerrant. We don't. Printers make mistakes. People who type them make mistakes. We're going to talk about all of these things. Inerrancy, as we believe it, applies to the original autographs. Now, there's an issue. There's a problem. Where are the originals? Where are the originals? We don't know. We don't know. We don't have them. They have been lost to history. Oh my goodness, Pastor Randy, sir, are you saying that we don't know what the original said such that we can't say that they're... No, 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 We'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. But please know, divine inerrancy applies to the original autographs. So what you have in your hand, you can say confidently, and I'll repeat this at the end, you have an accurate translation of the Word of God in your hands or on your phones. Now, one other thing to say about this, Uh, when we approach the scriptures and their reliability, we are in part depending on historical research. Now, why is that important to know? We're in part depending on historical research, and that tells us that historical research of any kind does not yield the type of certainty that mathematical certainty yields, or, what we would say, scientific certainty in some cases. Science can't even always yield scientific certainty. But when you think of that type of mathematical, logical certainty, history, no study of history can give that. Why? Well, because we're not there. We, we, we aren't there. And even when we are there, you can't, somebody can always give an alternative explanation for the events that occurred, even if that explanation has a minute possibility of being true. You see what I'm saying? So, for example, we could say the Emperor Caesar ruled Rome, and during this war he crossed this river. And somebody could come along and say, well, I think it wasn't Caesar, It was actually a general who dressed up and looked like Caesar and crossed the river. And because we're not there and we can't actually verify that with our eyes via DNA test and then verify whoever's doing the DNA test actually isn't lying and was paid off, you see. And it can go on and on. So it can't yield the type of mathematical certainty that we generally think of when we think of events transpiring, but we can't even do that today And with all of our modern-day technology in courts. Even when you have video surveillance of something, does that mean that everybody sees the same thing and interprets it the same way? There's a whole movement and hot-button issue in our country with law enforcement and videotapes. Even when it's caught on camera, you don't have the same interpretation of the events that went down. So, what we have in historical studies is confident certainty that these things or events occurred. Strong confidence that these events occurred. And if you toss out the Bible, you toss out all of history. You can know nothing. And some people land there. So we can know nothing. Some people actually believe that. There's nothing I can know except for what I experience. That sounds intellectually honest and intelligent, but the problem with that is none of us live that way. Nobody lives that way. You don't live that way. I don't live that way. How do do you know, Pastor Randy? Well, I'll give you two examples. One, I was born and I'm told that my mom and dad is Randy Pauly and Deborah Pauly. They're on my birthday. How do I know that they're my parents? I didn't see myself get born. I didn't see them sign the birth certificate. Maybe my birth certificate was forged. How do I know I wasn't stolen or switched in the adoption room? I don't look anything like my dad. Maybe that's a good, I don't know. You see, we don't live like that. I'm not going to call you mom until I have more certainty that you are my mom. Give me a DNA test. Mother's Day, out the window. No, we don't do that, or I'm being facetious, right? Let's go further. The elections in November. Are you going to vote? Some of you, yes, no. We're not going to talk about the presidential candidates, but just the fact of voting. How do you know that there is a U.S. Constitution? How do you know that was ratified? Were you there? Did you see it? Is it signed? Have you ever seen the original document? Many of you have not, yet you're going to act on the basis that it actually was ratified and you actually are a citizen of a country in which you can vote. And so you're going to act on that knowledge and go down and vote, Lord willing, for whoever you feel led by the Lord to vote for. You see what I'm saying? We don't have mathematical certainty. We have strong confidence that these events occurred. Now, point one. Lost in translation. So you'll have these slides on the screen here. Number one, lost in translation. Do you have, is this the best we have, a translation of translations of translations of hand copies? Now, you'll see in a minute more on this, but know this. The translation you have in your hand is directly from the original languages. So they make it sound as if, well, first it was translated into Greek. And then it was translated into Latin. And then it was translated into uh, Arabic. And then it was translated, and then now you have it in English. And there's all these generations between you and the text. No, 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 no. Beloved, what you have in your hand is a direct translation from the language it was written in. Greek and Hebrew. Now, it was actually translated in some cases from the Greek to Latin, down into English. And what that actually shows us is far from casting doubt on the text you have, it actually strengthens it. Because whenever they translate it from Greek directly to English, and then they take it from Greek to Latin to English, you know what they find happened? It says the same thing. Wow. Wow. It actually bolsters the case far from hurting it. Now, When we approach the Scriptures in this manner, what happened? I lost my stuff here. Whoa. When we approach the Scriptures in this manner, it's very important to remember translation you have doesn't go through all these types of things and then come to you with all these errors. You have it directly from the originals to you. Now, I'm going to assume, I'm not going to belabor the point that you believe because we don't have time, I'm going to assume that you believe it is possible to accurately translate from one language to the next if you're not using Google Translate, okay? If you're actually working with linguists and people who study structures and languages, then you will have an accurate translation as they do their work. So that's number one. Lost in translation? No, no. You have directly, accurately translated from the original languages to what you have today. Number two. Number two, a mountain of manuscripts. Now, this is just fantastic. This is just, this is really where it starts to get very, very interesting. So not only do you have an accurate translation, but you could say, well, Pastor Randy, okay, so I believe you can accurately translate them, in that we do have the translation from the original languages, but how do you know the manuscripts weren't corrupted, I mean, have you ever tried copying something word-for-word on a Word computer system or pages? How many red squiggle lines do you get? Plenty. Me too. I mean, so how are we to conclude that they were accurately copied? How do you know the manuscripts themselves weren't corrupted? Go to the next slide I believe you have up there. This is awesome. Now, when you compare... The average classical work, any ancient, this would actually be representative of Homer's Iliad, the Odyssey, the famous book. When you compare how many copies we have of it in ancient history, 643 to be exact, with how many manuscripts of the New Testament we have, that's amazing. That's amazing. That's how much manuscripts we have let me give you a few others how many how many do we have well we have plato who wrote in about 400 years bc 400 years before christ the earliest copy of a manuscript we have from plato earliest copy we have that survived was from ad 900 yeah like, okay you're lost in, you're lost in translation now right you can't put a, think about it Three to four hundred years before Christ, the earliest surviving copy of any of Plato's work we have is from 900 A.D., not B.C., A.D. How many years is that? That's 1,200 years removed from the time he wrote it to the time we have a copy. And how many copies of Plato's works do you think we have from ancient history? Seven. Seven. That's it. That's it. Have you ever looked at any of Plato's works and been like, he didn't write that. We don't know if he wrote that. No, nobody ever does that. Or how about, I've got a whole list here. I'm not going to give you all of them. Let's use Aristotle. Ooh, the writings of Aristotle. Sounds wise already, just saying it. Aristotle. He wrote, about 350 years B.C., 350 before Christ. The earliest copy of anything from Aristotle we have is from 1100 A.D. How many years is that? Do the math. 1,400 years. How many manuscripts from Aristotle do we have? 49. 49. 49. Let's come to the New Testament. I already told you Homer's Iliad, 900 B.C. It was written. Earliest copy we have from Homer's is 400 B.C., the original span of time between the earliest time that he wrote it and the surviving copy, 500 years. How many copies of Homer's Iliad do we have? We have 643. How about the New Testament? What are the numbers of those books? Well, it was written in the first century, So between 50 and 100 A.D., John wrote his Apocalypse, the Revelation, at roughly A.D. 90 or so, depending on how people date that. The earliest copy we have from the New Testament is from about the year A.D. 130, roughly between 45 and 75 years from the time it was written. Wow. 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 And how many copies do we have total of the Greek, just Greek New Testament? How many copies total? We have 5,600 approximately. Homer's Iliad, number two in ancient historical documents, 643. New Testament, 5,600. Homer's Iliad, how far was it from removed? 500 years. New Testament, how far removed? Less than 100 years. Now, some of you are still going to say, that's a long time, Pastor. It's a long time. Think about this. You may think it's a long time. You may think it's enough time for copies of copies of copies to be made and corrupted. But consider these things. Compared to all the other ancient manuscripts, first of all, that's hot off the press. 45 to 75 years is... It's nothing. Might as well be a brand new ride. But consider more. Books back then were far more valuable than they were today. Far more valuable. There was no printing fest. So keep in mind, when you wrote a book back then, it was very expensive and very labor intensive. So what you had was literally a treasure in your hand if you had a book. Today, we can, go to the, we can go to Walgreens and buy all sorts of little books and things. They couldn't do this. And not only that, they believed what they were writing was actually Scripture. So it was not uncommon for them in that generation to keep books and use a book for literally hundreds of years. Hundreds of years. I have a book in my office that's more than 100 years old, hasn't been touched and or tampered with. They would keep it and use it for many times, hundreds of years. There's an example of this. We actually have a fascinating example of this. Uh, There's one and one of the most important manuscripts they found. One of the most important manuscripts they found is called Codex. Which one? There's two of them. There's Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. Now, Vaticanus is a copy of the New Testament. It's a whole copy of the entire New Testament. It was made in the fourth century, which is the year 325 A.D. About. It's one of the oldest entire copies of the New Testament that we have. Now think about it. 325 A.D., scribes re-inked this book, so they had a book. Scribes re-inked this book in the 10th century so that it could be used longer. Do the math. 325 to the 10th century. That means they used this particular book for more than 600 years. Beloved, that means that there is a very high, not only possibility, but probability that the manuscripts we have are first-generation copies, some of them, of the New Testament. So far from being copies of copies of copies that were just corrupted and changed over time, there is a high probability that what we have in the New Testament is a first-generation copy sitting in a museum. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. Now, some will make charges like, well, pastor, yeah, there's a lot of manuscripts, and those are good and all, but you know what? Those manuscripts, there's a lot of variations within those manuscripts. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But what I want to see, yes, 5,600 in Greek. Some of them are from the year, let's say see, 125 AD. We have many more. They're awesome. But we will not have Greek manuscripts. We have Latin manuscripts also from the 3rd century, 3rd and 4th century, called the Latin Vulgate. How many manuscripts do we have in Latin? 8,000. 8,000. We have 8,000. We have about 350 copies of the Bible in Syriac that go back to the year 200 AD. And then, let's say we throw all those out the window. Ah, They're all corrupted. Those are no good. Let's just, all that mountain of manuscripts, let's just, doesn't count. There's these guys called the church fathers. They call them the anti-Nicene fathers or anti nicene fathers. Why do they call them that? Because they lived before, they wrote before what was called the Council of Nicaea, AD 325. Now, they wrote before that. So these guys were writing all sorts of stuff about the Bible. These these guys were Lifeway before Lifeway, all right? So they were writing about the scriptures. They were commenting on them. And what they would do is they would quote the scriptures. These guys, we have more than, get this, 10,000 quotations from the Bible in their writings. Actually, sorry, that is not correct. My bad. It's 32,000 scriptural quotations. I want to shortchange myself. These guys quoted the Bible 32,000 times in their writings such that if you take all the manuscripts, delete them, destroy them, and you just take the writings of the early church fathers, we can reconstruct from their writings the entire New Testament. Oh, it's amazing. And what happens when you compare them? That goes to number three. Point number three, which will also be up on the screen, Variance without variation. That's what happens. When you compare them, you have variance without variation. Now, going back to that charge, well, Pastor, you've got all these thousands of manuscripts, 25,000-ish New Testament manuscripts, and scholars will say, well, pastor, you know what? There's actually more variations of those manuscripts than there are words in the Scriptures. It means they differ from each other so much, there, there's more variations than there are words in the Scriptures. What type of certainty is that? Somebody even quoted, there's anywhere between 200,000 to 400,000 variants within those manuscripts. Wow, that kind of shoots a hole in my argument, doesn't it? Or does it? Or does it? What happens now? What scholars do, and this is called textual criticism. Say that with me: textual criticism. This, this, sound, this is fun, right? Some of you guys are sleeping. You're like, dude, this is hard, all right? But some of you are enjoying this, and this is actually really important. Okay, this is really important stuff, and we're not going to go into it. This is a whole uh, field of work and, and that we could talk about. It is. Very important work and very tedious work. What these guys do is they take all those manuscripts, it's 25,000, we got different linguists, Greek linguists and Syriac linguists and Latin linguists and and Hebrew scholars and all this stuff. They take all the manuscripts and what do they do? They compare them. They compare them to see what they all say. And what they do, what they find is they find variants. They do find variants. 95% of variants are unintentional errors. We have about four different types. Five if you want to count another category. Four different types. One of them is error of sight. Error of sight. So scribes would copy and look back and forth from the originals as they copied, and they would inevitably make a number of errors of sight. Number two, errors of hearing. Sometimes they would have somebody read, like you have Audible or as you listen to audiobooks, they would have somebody read while they wrote... And sometimes they would have an error of hearing and write the wrong thing. They would have errors of writing. Sometimes introduce errors into text simply by writing the wrong thing. And then sometimes errors of judgment, where they would exercise poor judgment and make comments on the text for clarification purposes that ultimately were unhelpful. Now, They introduced these variants for all kinds of reasons. Sometimes it was accidental. Sometimes it was for clarification. I'm actually going to give you an example uh, of how this played out uh, on the next slide, I think, if you can go there. So, in the bottom right here, there's an example of how this would play out. For example, letters that look similar might be switched out for each other. Now look closely and read that again. Letters that look similar might be switched out for each other. You see it? That's one way that it would happen. The next slide shows you another. One word might be substituted for another one when that sounded the same when read. You see it? You got it? One word might be substituted for another one that sounded the same when read. Now, that's a variation. That's an error. Do you know what that's saying? Throw out the whole meaning of the sentence? No. How do you know what was supposed to be there? You look at the context. You know that that's the wrong word. What's supposed to be there? O-N-E, not W-O-N. But that's another example. Here's another one. Words might be skipped. Huh. Did you get that one? Yeah, you guys, some of you are like, I don't see it. Oh, there it is. I'm a moron, right? Okay, yes, you are. No. some words might be skipped. Or the next one, words or letters might be doubled. Sometimes words or letters might be doubled. That's another example of the types of variations you see. And then the next slide, uh, and there's actually no, um, there's no errors in that one. Whole sections might be skipped when the same word was used a few lines apart. Now, that's the vast majority of the variations that you have. 95% of them. So that number that they give, 200,000, 400,000 variations, here's how they count that. Let's say you have 10 manuscripts that say it is easier for, the eye, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. Let's say you have 10 of them. They all say the same thing. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. Then let's say you get one manuscript, the 11th one, and it says it's easier for a cord to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's a variation. How many variants do you have? You say one. They would count them all as 11. You have 11 variants. That's how they get that big inflated number of 400,000 because they count every single manuscript, even if 10 of them say the same thing, but there's one variation, you get 11 variants, not one. Suddenly, the holes in their arguments start to look a little bit bigger. The devil's in the details, isn't it? When you look at these arguments, and then what you find is it's not as if these variants are littered all throughout the Bible. They all cluster around the same places over and over. What's the point of all this? Beloved, we have so many, so many manuscripts. We know exactly when they're doing it. We have so many manuscripts to compare back and forth, we know exactly when they're doing it. So while on one hand it looks like it's a bad thing because it shows all the variants, it's actually a good thing because it's the presence of thousands of manuscripts that allows us to correct them. You see, like you saw on the screen, it's, it's not that hard, it's not rocket science. And so as they see, they look at the text, it becomes quite clear. Why a scribe would introduce it, and what the original was. Now, some of the more substantial scribal additions, or insertions, or suspected readings in your Bibles are marked off with an asterisk, or brackets, or footnote, or center column note. And why do I go through all of this when we're in John seven fifty three to eight eleven? Look at your Bibles. Look at the Bible you have. Somewhere on there. It's going to be bracketed off or an asterisk and there should be a note says something like this this is not in the earliest and most accurate manuscripts or something like that manuscript evidence does not support this reading of the text or this section is omitted in majority of manuscripts you see that in your bibles most of you have that. If you have an asterisk, sometimes it'll be a uh, a little one and then you look and you click on that and it brings up the footnote. Do you, uh, raise your hand if you're looking at your Bible and you have something like that or it's bracketed off. It's bracketed off. Yeah, see, so many of you have it and some of you are still looking for it. I guarantee if I look at your Bible, you will have it in there. Um, The only Bible translation that doesn't have it bracketed off is the King James Version of the Bible and some editions of the New King James Version. Why is that? Well, because the King James Version was written in the year what? 1611 is when the Authorized Version came out. And this was, we found thousands, literally thousands and earlier manuscripts since then. And so all the new editions mark it off. What's the point of all this? Here's the point. You came in here, maybe you're doubting whether you have an accurate version of the Word of God. And if you doubt whether you have the Word of God, then you don't have to obey anything in it. But if it is the Word of God, if it is accurately translated, then what does that mean for your life? You better pay attention. There's probably no more important book you could read this week than that one. What's the point of all this? There's no conspiracy to trick anybody. There's no... So when you see articles like the one in Newsweek... They're making a big issue out of something that is not an issue at all. And actually, the translators tell you up front. They show you. They want to be honest. These men love God. They love people, and they're trying to serve you in their work. There's no conspiracy to trick anybody or hide anything. We know exactly what we have. The book you have in your hand is the Word of God, accurately translated and preserved. If you read it, it will change your life life i promise and obey it and last thing about the variations even with the more substantial variants like the ones you have john 753 to 811 another big one is the ending of mark it ends after verse 8 so verses 9 and on mark 169 is another one of those sections here's the issue with any of those not a single here it is not a single doctrine of the Christian faith is altered or changed in any way as a result of those variants. Isn't that amazing? That is phenomenal. Not a single doctrine of Christianity depends on a questioned portion of biblical text. Not a single one. Praise God. Praise God. Amen? Now, last point, number four, Next slide, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, this passage in John 7.53 to 8.11 is omitted. And most, of the earliest manuscripts, and all of the church fathers pass over it when they're commenting as if it's not there. None of them mention it. They go straight from 7.52 to 8.13 in their comments when they're writing about it. It's not there. Some manuscripts even include this story of the woman caught in adultery. Sometimes they place it in different parts of the Bible. They found in some manuscripts, they have it in Luke, after Luke 21, 38. Others place it in different places in John, after John 7, 44, John seven thirty-six, and some even have it after John 21, 25. Now, all of this is external evidence outside of the Bible that this was not an original portion of John wasn't originally a part of John's gospel. That's the external evidence, but the internal evidence is also against it being John's. What do you mean the internal evidence? If I write you a letter that's 20 pages long, you'll probably start to get a sense of the style of writing that I have, and you'll be able to tell that that there's a, a piece in there that If if there's no other words, you know, Randy doesn't write like this. He doesn't even know this. He doesn't use this word. This word wasn't even used. You'll be able to tell. You'll be able to get an idea. That's exactly what happened. There's several words in this section of the woman caught in adultery that John uses nowhere else, that are nowhere else used in in the New Testament except for Luke. So the internal evidence, the external evidence is all against it. So why is it here then? And what are we to do with it? It's famous. Many of you love this passage of scripture. What do we do with it? Why is it here? Some think it's to illustrate John 7.24 or 8.15 or both. Go to those passages of scripture. John 7.24, what does it say? As I flip there with you with my slow iPad. John 7.24. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So some people say it's to illustrate John 7.24, that this is Jesus judging with right judgment, or John 8.15. What does it say? You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. So some people say it's to illustrate those portions, so they inserted it here. Ultimately, we don't know. And so you would ask the next question, which is an important question. So if it's not inspired scripture, if it's not original to John's gospel, what is it? we don't know. I don't know. Nobody really knows where it came from or what it is. Scholars call it a floating tradition. If you put it in the water, it floats. No, I'm just kidding. They they call it a floating tradition, which means it, it doesn't have a home. So if you remember the end of John's gospel, what does John say in 21? He says this, now there are also many other things that Jesus did Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So you would expect that if Jesus did that many things that perhaps somebody wrote other accounts of what Jesus did that some of them may have survived. Now, is this an accurate account? Again, we don't know. It's a floating tradition. It may be It has the, what we call the the ring of authenticity to it. Why does it have that? Well, because it's consistent with the way Jesus behaves in other parts of Scripture. And so it, it may be true. So what do we do with it? What do we do with it? Shouldn't surprise us that there's floating traditions that come around. John and the others tell us themselves that these things would fill up the whole world if they were written down. So the question becomes, what do we do with it? All right, what do we do with it? So given that we don't have much longer left in our time together, I hope it's been helpful. So you think about manuscript transmission. Let me briefly give you some points and takeaways from this passage. All Everything I'm going to give you is taught elsewhere and affirmed elsewhere in Scripture. That we know is divine and inspired of God. Now, just because it's not part of our scriptures, what we do with passages like this is it means we don't hold them as authoritative. We hold the Word of God as authoritative and affirm what the Word of God teaches. But because this is contested, I'm going to teach a few things that we would take away from it if it were indeed, for sure, scripture. So Let's look at this passage. Famous. Let's explain some misconceptions, and I'm going to do this very briefly. A few players in this passage. One, the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders. We see them in many other places. Two, the woman caught in adultery. And and so they bring this woman who's caught in adultery and and throw her at the feet of Jesus. They place her there. And Jesus, or they say to him, they want to trap him. Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Verse 5. Now in the law of Moses, he commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? Verse 6 says, they said this to test him. So they might have some charge to bring against him. Now you see the test. Here's the test. Here's a woman caught in adultery. Jesus is known for compassion, forgiveness, kindness. And they're going to want to see, is he going to uphold the law of Moses and kill this woman? Or is he going to show compassion? In any case, he's caught in a bind trying to test him. What does Jesus do? Well, verse 6, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. What did he write? A lot of people make a lot of about what he wrote. What did he write? You want to know what he wrote? We don't know. We don't, we don't know. You want to know what's important about that? Nothing. You know why, you know why it's not important? Because it's not written here, so that's not the main point of what John's trying to, he he, or whoever wrote this, they're not trying to get us to focus on what he wrote, they're trying to get us to focus on something else. He wrote with his finger on the ground. Seven, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Who who has condemned you? Has nobody left? She said, No one, Lord. Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. From now on, go and sin no more. Now, one of the biggest misconceptions that come out of this passage is verse seven. This is what many of you probably know from this passage, and you've probably quoted it or or used it and misapplied it. It's okay. We all do this. And that's, let him who is without sin among you cast or throw the first stone at her. Now, this gets distorted to mean something it was never meant to mean. This doesn't mean that Moses or, or Jesus expected people who were to obey the law of Moses to be sinless, exemplary saints. This was in the law of Moses, and he meant for it to be obeyed by saints who struggle with sin. But we take it to mean, well, I'm a sinner, and if I'm not going to say anything about what this person's doing, even if they're sleeping with their wife or, or beating them or whatever, because, I mean, him who's without sin, let him cast the first stone. I'm not going to make any judgments. That is 21st century religious pluralistic tolerance, and it is filthy and non-biblical. None of it, this is never meant to be, and no other passage of Scripture is meant to ever say that Christians don't make judgment calls about sin, especially within the body. This doesn't mean we don't exercise church discipline unless we're perfect. No, 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 no. None of that is here. What is then? What does it mean then? Here's what Jesus was doing. Jesus was exposing a double standard and hypocrisy of the day. What was it? Well, who did they bring to Jesus? The woman caught in adultery. What's the question that comes out of that? Where's the man? What is the double standard in hypocrisy? Well, back then, as now, men could commit adultery and sexually immoral acts, and they looked the other way. It was okay and actually even understood as customary. But for a woman to engage in the same thing, elicited killer. Do we see this today? Yes. So what Jesus is actually doing is he is exposing a double standard in hypocrisy, which he does elsewhere in Scripture, does he not? He's always exposing the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. So what's he doing? How is he doing it? What he's doing is he's saying, in essence, let him who is without sin, when he says this, he's saying far more accurately, let him who is without sin this particular sin casts the first stone. Well, what does that mean? Okay, if you're here and you're accusing her of committing adultery, any of you religious leaders, if you haven't committed adultery, go for it. Burn! And what happens? Silence. And they leave. <laughs> he just exposed their hypocrisy. None of them. Look at how massively hypocritical this is. These men of God doing the very same things they're accusing this woman of doing. And what does Jesus do? He just blows it wide open. She loved Jesus. Amen. Amen. Now, that still leaves a question. Did Jesus let her off the hook? Did he obey the Mosaic law? I mean, he said, neither do I condemn you. What happened here? No... What happened here is the bigger picture, the point of this section, but also of the Gospels at large. Jesus didn't disobey the law. He fulfilled it in himself. Jesus didn't let her off the hook. He didn't condemn her. In fact, he was condemned in her place as a substitute and through it saved her, John eleven fifty. Or, as Galatians 3.13 says, I love this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. What is the curse of the law? Death. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So what is Jesus doing right here? He is fulfilling the law and canceling the curse for all who believe. So what's the good news for you, the takeaway for you? The good news is some of you in here maybe identify with a woman caught in adultery. Maybe you're caught in literal adultery, I don't know. Maybe you're doing something equally heinous. And you're wondering if on the other side of this is condemnation. Then know this, Jesus offers you forgiveness of sins today if you will repent and believe. You will not get condemnation at Kahalui Baptist Church when you come to Christ. Christ was condemned by becoming a curse for us. Meditate on that. Some of you are just keep trying to behave better. I'm just going to quit trying. uh, do bad things. I'm going to quit trying to have sex with my boyfriend or girlfriend. I'm going to quit trying to drink too much. I'm going to quit trying to swear too much. Some of you don't need to behave better. Some of you need to first believe better. Believe and know that you are not condemned in Christ, that he was condemned in your place. And then out of that belief, out of that meditation on the work of Christ, you stop sinning. Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. You forsake your lifestyle. Find true freedom and joy in Christ. Some of you need to hear that today. Go and sin no more. So that you won't be condemned? No, because you are not condemned if you follow Christ. In closing, I want to close with a poem that will summarize all of this. There's a lot more we could say in all this, but I'm going to close it up. From John Newton. Precious Bible, what a treasure does the Word of God afford. All I want for life, for pleasure, food and medicine, shield and sword. Let the world account me poor. Christ in this I need no more. You have everything you need in the Word of God before you. Praise God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your miraculous work in preserving your word to us through the ages. May you be honored and exalted and glorified and adored for revealing yourself to your people. And I pray that as we leave, that we would meditate on this reality that you became a curse for us, that we might walk in newness of life. Would you help us, I pray? Would you draw? Those who may have doubted your word to faith this morning and those who are living in sin, may they go and sin no more today and find forgiveness and joy in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.